Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. This episode of the History Chicks is brought to you by the new podcast called Dog Smarts. Each episode features researchers and academics that tackle the questions of language, memory, intelligence, and even love as they pertain to our dogs. You can subscribe to Dog Smarts on iTunes now. We'd like to welcome a new sponsor to the History Chicks, the Great Courses Plus Video Learning Service. We're so excited to tell you about the Great Courses Plus because, like us, we know your love of learning certainly didn't end when you left school. The Great Courses Plus is offering one month free to our listeners to watch as many lectures as you want from their list of thousands, all taught by top professors. You just need to visit thegreatcoursesplus.com slash chicks. A brief note on sound quality. Mm, Skype was just having one of its days, I think. So there's a lot of those drip drop noises that Skype likes to put in. I'm not really sure how they accomplish that. Anyway, we cleaned it up the best we could. I hope you enjoy it. And now on with the show. Hello and welcome to the show. We have a special guest today. With the success of the play Hamilton, a lot of you have requested that we cover the Schuyler sisters. But there's not been enough information out there. Aha! But wait... Let's introduce our guest, Amanda Vale, lover of history and author of documentaries, articles, and books, including an upcoming biography of these very women, your requested Schuyler sisters, and she has agreed to talk with us today about her work. Welcome. Well, thank you for calling me. I'm excited to talk to you. <laughs> oh, I was so excited when I found online that you were writing this book. I was like, yes, yes, our people are going to love this. <laughs> So well, can- I'm so excited that people want to know. It is the best thing that a writer can ever, ever hear is that people want to know about what they're writing about. Can you tell us anything about the book itself? When is it coming out? Um, when- well, when it's coming out will depend on when I finish it. And I have really just begun the research um, in the past few months. I've started working on it. Um, so... The process of writing a biography is a long one. You can take as much as, if you look at Robert Caro and his Lyndon Johnson biographies, they take 10 years to write just one volume. And I'm hopeful of clocking in well under that limit. Um, My (laughs) other books have taken me between three and seven years. I'm hoping that this will be finished sometime, I'm hopeful, in the next two years. How did you get interested in these ladies in the first place? What was the little spark? I had begun working on a a book about the Spanish Civil War called Hotel Florida, which came out a year ago about. Um, And I was in the middle of that research, and I thought I would read, uh, for light reading, um, the biography of Alexander Hamilton by Ron Chernow, because I knew Ron, and I thought it was sitting in my house, and I thought it would be very different from what I was working on. And indeed it was. And I thought as I was reading it, how interesting these two women were. This wife of Alexander Hamilton, Elizabeth, Eliza, Betsy, as she was called, and her sister Angelica, on whom Hamilton clearly had a king-sized crush, and if not more. And I, you know, I thought to myself at the time, wow, this is this would be a really great biography for someone to write. Somebody ought to write that book. Uh, If I were an editor, I'd be thinking, whoa, I should find someone to write that. And then I didn't think anything more of it. I finished my book. 
it was published, I was thinking about what shall I write next? And I went to see Lin-Manuel Miranda's musical, Hamilton, at the Public Theatre. And I was sitting in that small audience and saw this electrifying show. And it was as if I had been hit by a lightning bolt. I thought, oh my God, yes, I was absolutely right. Those two women are an extraordinary story. I want to write it. I want to write it now. I will kill myself if somebody else gets this idea and does it. I will kill myself. So I got busy and I called my agent. I said, I want to do this. He said, absolutely, you should do this. And you have to do this really quickly. And I said, yes, I do. So I went to work and um, I had this sort of deadline that as soon as Hamilton came to Broadway, I knew that everybody in America was going to say, what a great story, write about those women. And I just didn't want anyone else to be doing it but me. So that's what I did. And my publisher, fortunately, was very excited by the idea when I proposed it to them. And here I am. That was very, very, very wise of you. <laughs> Given the fact that we have so many requests, um, the second that hit Broadway, have you, so you saw the musical in, what do they call that, the trials? The way that worked was that Hamilton, the musical, was commissioned by the Public Theater, which is a nonprofit theater in New York. It um, has a smaller than a Broadway-sized theater in which this show was put on. And in this particular case, almost as soon as it opened, people thought, oh my God, this is really going to be big. And Lin-Manuel Miranda had had a previous show on Broadway called In the Heights, and there were commercial producers who were interested in partnering with the public to bring it to uh, Broadway. So, I mean, it wasn't really a tryout. It was just its first incarnation, let's put it that way. And then it had a second incarnation on Broadway. And now we'll have a third one as um, because they're rolling it out as a national tour and people all over the country will get to see a version of Hamilton. My next door neighbor just got tickets to Chicago, the Chicago. She said she had four laptops going to try to get tickets. <laughs> She's in Chicago. She's fighting for, with a lot of people for those tickets. All of a sudden, you know, Broadway is like being a rock star. It's fantastic. And who would, who would believe it? So I find it really amazing that one of the people sharing in all the profits from this amazing show is Ron Chernow, the biographer who did all that spade work to bring Hamilton and his story to life. And he was an advisor on the show from the beginning. He really, really helped them to shape it so that it has a real historical authenticity about it that a lot of things like this might not have. And um, very generously, um, the creators agreed to cut him into a percentage of the profits, which is astonishing. Speaking of historical accuracy, how do you feel about some of the differences? I know it's narrative economy and, and you know, drama. Like, and Angelica was already married. For me, the fact that Angelica is already married and then meets this hot guy that her just younger sister, the one that's kind of the tag along, you know, not, she's not the... Angelica's the oldest. She's the glamour puss in the family. She's the alpha girl. I have the, I just really get the feeling that she's, that's what she is. She's the alpha girl in the family. And Eliza's a lot more of a seeming kind of beta girl. And then she's the one 
who gets this amazing guy. And I think Angelica takes one look at that and thinks, if I had just waited, it would have been me. But, you know, she didn't. She was, by that time, she was not only married, but she had, I think, three children. Because <laughs> she, she just popped them out one right after another um, with her husband, John Barker Church. And I think, to me, the story that's interesting is, is that, is this sort of the rivalry between the sisters, uh, rivalry and love, because there was deep love between them. So it's a very complex story about being sisters and then this potential for jealousy that she has in the case of of Hamilton the musical you've got two hours you've got to get your whole story you're not you know you don't have the luxury of the long view that you had in biography and you're also telling the story of Hamilton and these two women not so much about these two women and Hamilton so the, the focus is really on what he feels about her rather than what she feels about him. I think the way to tell that and have her not be married so that there are choices being made on stage when you can see it, I think that's really important. And I, I understand doing that, um, even though I wouldn't, I, th I don't know. I think I wouldn't have done that, but I, I'm sort of much more a stickler for accuracy than many people. Well, yeah, there's that line where she says, I have to marry rich because my father has no sons. Absolutely. I mean, there are there are many sons. They had, uh, there were, in fact, um, like four sons mm -hmm. that survived. And there were other yeah. sisters too, right? Counting Angelica and Eliza, and then there's there were 11 kids, seven girls and five, uh, four sons. Math, ouch. Hey, I, can you clear math, math, my strong suit, as you can see. You've, you've gone right to my vulnerable point immediately. <laughs> Can't add. You're my kind of people. Um, I, can you clear up something for me? When Church came into Angelica's life, they didn't know him as Church, correct? Oh, no, they didn't. He was, he is such an interesting character because, uh, again, I'm finding that he is a lot different from the way he is portrayed in certainly Chernow's book. John Barker Church was an Englishman and he came from sort of, I, he was a merchant class guy from sort of the Midlands in England. He came from Lowestoft, which is a place where they make China. And um, he apparently got into difficulties in business in London in the 1770s and was bankrupt and had to flee the country because he couldn't pay his bills. And what would have happened, he would have been put in debtor's prison and that would have been really not cool for him. So he just got out of town and fled his creditors and came to America and lived under an assumed name. And he, he, he was known as John Carter. And he was a very smart kind of a flash businessman. He was, he would have made out really, really great in the hedge fund economy, I'll tell you, because he was all about leveraging other people's assets to make money for himself. And he managed to get himself a job reviewing the accounts of the army in the northern part of the colonies, the continental rebel army during the war, which had just broken out. And 
uh, he got in with Philip Schuyler at that point because Philip Schuyler was a general and was commanding the northern part of the army. And of course, the Schuylers had these glamorous daughters, one more beautiful than the next, apparently. And Mr. Carter, he decided he would make up to the eldest of them. I'm no doubt being certain that he would get a share of the Schuyler moolah if he did this. And General Schuyler was not at all happy about this man. He, you know, I think he checked him out and said, nobody knows anything about him. And we're not, you know, we don't know anything about this guy. I don't trust him an inch. And of course, Angelica thought he was incredibly glamorous because he made out like, oh, he couldn't say why he left England, but he, he put it about that maybe it was possible that he had been involved in a duel. Um, and he had these really cracked dueling pistols, which in the end uh, played a very fateful part in his family that he married into. Um, but she ran off with him. She eloped with him. And she didn't even find out his real name for like, I don't know, five years or something. <laughs> but that's a totally different reaction than they had when they met Hamilton, right? Which is so amazing. Here's this guy who's like, okay, his name is Carter, and they're not really sure that that's his name, but they don't know that it isn't. And he's obviously making money, and, you know, he has, he's already got a very, very tidy living and can support their daughter, but they're not interested in him. And the person that they fall madly in love with as a family is this guy who is A, penniless, B, illegitimate, and C, comes from, you know, the Caribbean, from an island. He has no family, he has no money, he has no prospects, but he is really smart and he is really interesting. And they just fell in love with him. I think it's so fascinating. What a family that is. You know, let's delve in deeper to the Schuyler sisters themselves. You had mentioned Papa. Where is his wealth from? Where is he from? Well, his family, if you know, you remember that New York uh, was a Dutch area. It was a Dutch colony. Originally it was colonized by the by a bunch of people from Holland. Um, and they had vast, vast amounts of land that they claimed for themselves. And the Schuyler family was one of a small bunch of almost, I don't know, I would call them, they were like royalty um, in this country, Dutch families. They were given giant land grants by the Dutch crown in New Netherland, as they called it in those days. And uh, the Schuylers, the Van Rensselaers, the Van Cortlands, about four families that really basically owned all of what is now New York State. And if you think about that, that you know you have these vast quantities of land, and on this land there is timber, and people need timber to build houses, and they need timber to build bridges and boats and all that other stuff. And then they have grain, and they have fruit, and they have vegetables, and they have all of that stuff. They also have furs in the forest. They trap that. From all of this comes enormous wealth. It's all wealth that comes out of the land. And as a result, you know, once the land gets depleted or if there suddenly is more land, uh, the value of the land that you have goes down. Uh, so 
there is a kind of a, uh, there's a vulnerability in the Schuyler wealth, which became evident in the 19th century. But in the 18th, when we come upon them in this story, they are riding high. They have all, they are very, very rich and they're land rich is what it is. They're rich because of land. And the, the Schuylers, Philip Schuyler himself personally had estates that stretched from Saratoga, actually Glens Falls, which is a town on the Hudson River, all the way south to practically to the middle, you know, in between Albany and New York City. So he owned something like a quarter of New York State. We were just talking about in Catherine the Great of Russia, how yeah. many little German pocket principalities there were. And some of the land grants in the New World seemed bigger than the actual countries. Think of this, they're, they're settled, they're living on this East Coast, but this country goes back and back and back and it goes up and up and up. And where the Schuylers lived, which was fascinating, is they were on the edge of the settled colonial land and the area is still owned essentially by the Native Americans, by the, the six nations of the Iroquois. They still were in charge of all the land sort of to the north and west of where the Schuylers were. And you were in Indian territory if you went too far north or too far west. And you had to make treaties with them. You had to coexist with them. And they did. And there were Native American families who lived on the Schuyler land. And when the children were small, they played with all the little Native American kids who were, they all ran around in the woods together. It was a kind of wild Arcadia, you know. It's it's like some, if Jean-Jacques Rousseau were having an acid trip, he would think about this would be his idea of heaven. It's all these little kids of different nations running around together in the woods. That's very romantic. During um, conversations that we've had about your book, you weren't sure, and maybe still aren't sure, how much you would include Peggy, the third sister, but I thought maybe I could tell you what I know, which is minimal, and see if you had any other magical tidbits to tell me. Well, um, I know that Peggy married a distant cousin of Anne Rensselaer, um, as one does when one is aristocracy, um, and his title was a poltroon, which to me at first seemed like a insult from Yosemite uh, Sam. <laughs> it's a patroon. Patroon. Yeah. That's like patron or boss. You know, you can say it if you say it in a Dutchy accent, it would be patron. Oh. And patron, because Dutch always sounds like you're clearing your throat. <laughs> um, and that's, and, and actually Hamilton used to refer to Peggy as Mrs. Patroon because she had married the Patroon. And that's what he was always called, the Patroon. It's like a capital T-H, you know. That reminds me of earls in England, like um, very feudal, but they're, you know, maybe they're like the on-the-ground nobility. They're the ones that know what's going on on the land. Does that seem like his role? nobility and in fact the people who lived on their land were like serfs they couldn't actually they didn't own the land they rented it uh, they had to pay rent to their to the patroon if they wanted to leave their farm they would have to get permission 
there was all, and you could be a really fierce, bad, not very nice patroon. Like I think Stephen Van Rensselaer's father was supposed to have been very severe and not nice. And Stephen was supposed to be very nice and was a good guy. And Philip Schuyler's wife, Catherine, was the daughter of the patroon of her day. So, you know, Peggy married her first cousin. Oh, not a distant cousin. First cousin. Uh-huh. Oh, see, I'm like, oh, ho, that's what one does. Um, So tell us the story of all I have, uh, all I have in my notes is Peggy evaded a tomahawk. (laughs) Yeah, well, during the revolution, at one point, um, the English army or a detachment thereof, there were English scouts who got together with a bunch of disaffected Native Americans, and they attacked the Schuyler homestead. And Angelica, who was pregnant with, I don't know, this must have been the fourth, it was the third or the fourth child. And um, Eliza, who was pregnant with her first one, are all staying with their mother, who has recently given birth. I mean, oh, these women had long childbearing lives. And if you imagine, she had Catherine Van Rensselaer Schuyler had 11 kids. So the tiny baby, little Catherine, had just been born. And um, she is in a cradle. And all of a sudden, this attack happens. And there are these Native Americans and these English sympathizers, Tories, attacking their homestead. And first of all, it's Peggy who sounds the alarm. And they all go upstairs, and I think General Schuyler was even there, and he starts shooting his gun off, and they send someone for help. And in the meantime, Peggy remembers, oh, my God, we all ran upstairs, and we left the baby downstairs. Oh, my God, I have to get her. So she runs down the stairs and grabs the cradle, and she's about to run upstairs when someone throws a tomahawk at her. How about that? Baby is safe, and the alarm is sent, and all the miscreants are rounded up, and justice is done to them. So it's really quite a good story. And I think it's actually real. I have to... um, I have to check it out and make sure that there are other contemporary accounts that that bolster this up. But I I think that it will turn out to be certainly pretty reliable. And it's such a good story. I have to leave it in anyway. Uh, (laughs) Oh, absolutely. That's a great story. And it sure sheds a little bit more light on the the sister who's not given a lot of spotlight in the play. She was very funny. She seemed to have a sense of humor, Peggy. And there's a a funny moment that happened at, at Washington's inaugural ball when Angelica had come back from Europe where she was living with her husband and children in England at that time and um, but she wanted to be there for this exciting moment and so they're all dancing at the inaugural ball and Angelica's garter falls off Mm -hmm. and Hamilton who is right there picks it up from the floor and you know does this exaggerated bow and offers it to her and um and angelica who's a very flirtatious woman says essentially sort of oh no sir you must not presume that you will now become a knight of the garter and peggy who is standing there says sort of clearly to the person she's standing next to, he would be knight of the bedchamber if he could. A saucy Peggy. Ooh. Ooh. Girl, she don't miss much, that Peggy. <laughs> uh-huh. 
Uh, no, Peggy, um, who, in fact, does not appear in Act 2 of the play, uh, although the actress does, more on that later, um, she died relatively young. She did. It's not clear from the records what her problem was. She seemed to have had either heart failure or it, maybe she had cancer. It was something to do with her lungs or her circulation, but she was having a lot of palpitations and on a, being unable to breathe. And, um, and she, she did die in like 1802, I think. She was 42-ish? Yeah, really sad. Yeah. And now it's time to take a little break. And when we come back, we will talk about Angelica. Every time my kids hear me talking about this, they ask if we're getting a dog. And the answer is always, no, we're not getting a dog. But now I'm beginning to think we're not getting a dog yet. But if you already have one and you ask yourself questions like, does my dog understand what I'm saying? Can my dog sense when I'm sad? Can nutrition have a positive impact on my dog's cognitive health? Well, if you have asked yourself those questions or one similar, you need to tune into the podcast Dog Smarts, hosted by leading author and professor of cognitive neuroscience at Duke University, Dr. Brian Hare. Each episode of Dog Smarts brings together the brightest researchers and academics to discuss what's really going on in your dog's brain. Download it, subscribe to Dog Smarts on iTunes now. So on to Angelica, most people's favorite, but I have to say, I don't think Susan's or mine favorite sister. I know. <laughs> we, are, we talked about this before, which was our favorite. Do you have a favorite? I haven't got a favorite yet, but I, I don't know. I mean, yeah, Angelica, like I said, she's, she's kind of the alpha girl. She's really sure of herself. She's very flirtatious. She's a real networker, busy, not so much sleeping her way to international fame and fortune, but to she's uh, using those connections in a big way. She likes to operate on a big world stage. And um, there is a part of me that just thinks, oh, you make me tired. <laughs> <laughs> I just feel like, you know, the way you are when you're with somebody who's trying really hard all the time, you just, you're not sure that that's, I don't know. I, I think Eliza is a thornier and more interesting person in a lot of ways, but I, I'm not sure. I think maybe together they make up an extraordinarily interesting balance for me. So I don't know. I don't know what I think about her yet. Um, I do know that she's, She's complicated because she's very, she's very acquisitive. She, um, and she's very sure of herself. So when her husband was sent as the envoy to France, so I'm reading that Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin were there and her name was also linked to, you know, those men uh, and the Marquis de Lafayette, I think platonically, correct me if I'm wrong. I, I think so. Um, in fact, her husband was, the reason he went to France was he was collecting all the money that the French government owed him for uh, the work that he'd done for them during the Revolutionary War. And so Angelica, of course, who spoke quite good French, goes with him and greases the wheels and is very charming and everybody, you know, loves her. So they basically pay off when John Church comes calling with his IOU. And then they go to live in England and he gets elected to Parliament and they are all 
involved in this very, very swanky set of liberal English politicians who were running around with the Prince of Wales, who was would then be George IV after his father died, but who was also Prince Regent during the time that his father was mad, if you will all remember uh, the madness of King George. Um, so he went, George III goes bonkers for a period of time, and George IV, who is not yet George IV, but still just the Prince Regent, becomes the Regent. And John Church and all these other Pauls are his buddies. And Angelica's hanging out with all of them, and she's, you know, they're having card parties and this and that, and, um, and she's the hostess for all of this. So she's kind of at the center of this very glittery set of important people. Isn't that and, so strange, though, for someone whose father was a general in the war? Like, they just got done with it. This whole group of people were actually against the war to begin with. They were all, oh, let those colonies go. They should go. Because they were, they were the liberal people who were much more lefty. And, oh, yes, there should be freedom for these people. Just let them, let them leave. This is terrible. It's costing us more money than it's worth to keep them let's let the colonies go and but it was the Tories the conservatives who didn't want them to go and that was what George III was and his prime minister Lord North were all that that's very enlightening I'm that completely changes for me yeah that relationship I just want to go back a second to France and just see yeah. you think of this so we have Angelica in France the same time as Marie Antoinette and Jane Austen's cousin Eliza and uh -huh. I think Georgiana, Duchess of Devonshire. So worlds are colliding all over the place. Georgiana is also a friend of Angelica's because her, the, the Devonshires are part of this same Whig, they were called the Whigs, um, the same liberal political set in England. So they're all pals. Think of that. So many of our subjects collide in unexpected ways. <laughs> I'm just thinking of what a great party that would have been, you know? But Angelica and Hamilton, what was the nature of their relationship, do you think? I mean, they were flirty for sure, and they, they flirted with commas, which I think we're not good enough with grammar these days to be able to pull off. Yeah, there are some really interesting comma misplacements in their letters to each other that if you, you know, read them with the pauses where the commas are, you know, you can sort of read between the lines. You know, I it, this is one of the things that I'm going to have to settle for myself as I continue to do the research because so far, Hamilton's biographers seem to be, I mean, Ron Chernow says, oh, it's impossible that she could ever, that Angela could, could ever have had a, an affair of any kind with Hamilton because the family would have hated him and um, Eliza would never have, she would have been furious and unhappy and would never have spoken to her sister again. And then there is, there are other historians, some of whom have pointed out that there are some very intriguing entries in Hamilton's account books for the summer of 1789 when Angelica was living in New York City, she'd stayed on after the inaugural ball, and 
Eliza had gone to the country upstate to Saratoga to, with her family, with the Schuylers, and Angelica's all alone in New York City during the summer season when lots of other people are gone and she and Hamlin are just hanging out together. And there were some interesting entries in the account books that seem to suggest that there might have been more going on there than meets the eye. And I, my own feeling about this is I don't yet know and I'm going to try to get the closest thing to a smoking gun that I can. Um, if it doesn't exist, I'll just have to throw up my hands and say, here's the evidence on this side and here's the evidence on the other side. I do feel the thing about Elizabeth, Eliza, Betsy, is that she's someone who is, she was an intensely loyal person. If she had made up her mind that she was your friend or your sister or your wife, you know, she, she would be loyal to you to the end. There is something just fierce about her. And I think that this may have been a really difficult situation for her to see her sister flirting with her husband. Um, I, you know, that it cannot have been easy. And, and yet her loyalty to her sister was intense. She adored her sister. And I have this feeling that in a sort of family dynamic way that Eliza is kind of codependent on Angelica. She needs her and she can't ever push her away. There would, that would not be possible. Well, I hope I hope you find what's there. Number one, yeah. I wish you well, but I'm I, is secretly I have to say I hope that you don't find evidence of an affair because <laughs> that would really bum me out. That's a deep, deep betrayal of your sister. I think so too, and I just don't. You know, she did write that famous letter where she said, you know, if you were as I love your husband, and if you were as generous as the old Romans, you would lend him to me for a little while. Oh, that is an amazing letter to write to your sister. Well, maybe she needed a shelf hung or something. <laughs> yeah. In the meantime, though, what's quite fascinating is that, and, and here's the thing about Angelica, she's um, she's quite a tough cookie. She um, she gets her friend Mariah Causeway, who is this artist who she knows in England, she gets Mariah to introduce her to Mariah Causeway's great and good friend, Thomas Jefferson, the American envoy in Paris. And before you know it, Thomas Jefferson is making goo-goo eyes at Angelica and writing her naughty letters about, you know, oh, let's run away to America. I, you know, I have this idea that we will relive this such and such a scene in this racy novel. And he refers to it. So then you go to look at what the racy novel is and you think, oh, my God, you know, because the scene in the racy novel involves um, switching bed partners in a hotel. And you just start thinking, what is he suggesting to a married woman? My goodness, sir. You know, really. But you know what that does say? That he assumes she's going to understand that reference. So I guess they have been brought up with some education. Yeah, what, what's their education level? Now, that, that's another interesting thing is that, you know, they, they both had seemingly more education than a lot of colonial women might have had. You know, they didn't, they learned their letters from an old Dutch reform minister in Albany and, you know, to do simple sums and like that. And then certainly the two elder girls, possibly 
the three elder girls. And I, and it's again, what happened to Peggy in all of this? It's not clear that she was there, but they are sent to school in New York City and they're boarded with this old, some widow and the Schuylers pay this widow money and I think tea and sugar or something they give her as well as a payment for putting the girls up. And they, so they're at school in New York and when the girls' schooling is finished, Eliza goes home to the family estates in Albany because she wants to learn how to. She, I think, she's homesick. She loves her. She loves her family. She really loves them. She loves being out of doors. She's a big outdoor girl. She loves hiking and walking up mountains and running around in the woods and stuff like that. And um, and Angelica is much more a society girl and she wants to stay in New York because of the bright lights and all of that. So she does. And she apparently wanted to also work on her French and which Eliza never really mastered and to work on her penmanship. And here's something surfaces that I'm really fascinated by. For some reason, a bunch of biographers of Hamilton believe that Eliza Hamilton had really, really bad handwriting and was a chaotic speller. And uh, not just that, but she was also uh, sort of semi, I don't want to say illiterate, but that she couldn't write a coherent letter. And this is certainly true of a couple of examples of her letters that I have seen, but they were both written about things that she was very emotionally upset about. In one case, it was sending her son away to be apprenticed to somebody, and she was really not looking forward to it. And feel, it was right this is after Hamilton had died, and she's really under a lot of stress, emotional stress. And you can kind of infer that just from the letter. I have found a bunch of letters by her that actually I haven't seen referred to in other accounts, and I, I don't want to say, oh, I'm, you know, I'm the first person to ever find these because I don't think I could possibly be, but um, but they certainly give the lie to this idea. They're exquisite. Her handwriting is exquisite. It is regular. It is tidy. And she is an elegant phrase maker. She writes beautiful letters. And I'm looking at this and thinking, this is, no, this is not this little kind of unlettered, chaotic, dyslexic person. This is actually a well-educated, extremely elegantly educated person. I think both these women are. And you read either of their letters, and you, you see that they're very well-schooled. They have a great understanding of the English language and how to use it, and, um, and they have beautiful handwriting. And I'm thinking, well, you know, somebody spent some time making sure that happened. Say you start out, you're the first one out of the gate. Maybe you are the first one out of the gate. Where, how do you begin to research a new novel subject. Where, where do you even begin as a writer? Well, you know, the thing is with any biography, you, you, you go and look for clues everywhere. You have to cast your net very, very widely. And I've always been the kind of biographer that starts with just, I'll go anywhere and I'll look at anything. I don't, I don't ever, I've never used a research assistant because I don't know what I'm looking and I can't say, oh, go and find me X, because I don't know, it's, you know whether it's going to be X or if it's going to be something else. So I will just go where I think there's going to be some interesting material, and I just start 
going through it. It's like you have a great big messy closet and you say, let's find out what's in here. <laughs> and you just go into it and start pulling this stuff out. And you begin to find these little bits and pieces. Now with women's history, because women, particularly the farther back you go in history, women aren't, their records aren't as well kept. People don't keep them. They don't, if you're a woman and you leave a lot of letters, mostly what happens is your family puts the, they either throw them out because you're a woman and they don't matter, or they put them with your husband's papers or your son's papers or your father's papers. So you find all of these somewhere else. You don't find them in a nice tidy pile that says the letters of Alexander Hamilton, Treasury Secretary of the United States. Um, you know, you just don't. So you have to look in really weird places to begin with. And then the other thing you have to do with, with really anybody, but particularly with women, is you have to think about what other kinds of records tell you what happened to this person in their life. What about things like household account books? Um, what they spent on candles and tea, what what they spent at the dressmaker, what kind of clothes did this person have, where did they get them, um, you know, all of that kind of stuff. You, you can find incredible material in household books and household account books. Um, newspaper accounts will find, will, will often tell you things. Uh, there might be an account of something where there will just be a suddenly there will be a, a reference to some person and then they will will suddenly find out they were at this party that everybody was talking about. Um, you will find them referred to in uh, old memoirs and, and books of anecdotes. And this is a really interesting thing is that in the 19th century, it was kind of like what happened with, I think, the World War II and the greatest generation and all that. There was that spate of greatest generation books that came out really, you know, I mean, 10 years ago. I think what happened is people suddenly thought, oh, my God, our parents, gener this generation of people lived through great history and they're all dying off. And the ones that aren't dead, we have to get them and we have to find out what happened to them. And those of us who remember anything about it, we have to write it down. And that happened with respect to the... Revolutionary War and the founding of this country, that in the 19th century, all of a sudden, these people suddenly said, oh my God, we need to, we need to get a record of what happened before all of these people are gone. So all of these people wrote memoirs, or there's something called the, you know, the memoirs of God, daughter of Washington, which is actually a memoir of one of the Schuyler daughters, who was the youngest one. Um, that's her, just her memoir, and talks about her life and the things that happened to her. And then women bought these books. Is the other thing that women buying them in the 19th century, and they all want to know what was it like to be a woman at the time of the Revolutionary War. So all of these books are published in middle to the late 19th century. Books about being a colonial housewife. Books about schoolgirls in the colonies. All of this kind of stuff. And then they all go out of print and they're sitting in libraries gathering dust. And if you go and find them, you get this incredible treasure trove of history that has just been sitting there kind of forgotten. It's amazing. Is there some kind of accident happening behind you? <laughs> we hear a lot of sirens. 
You know, this is the thing about New York City. It's just a noisy place all the time. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. The only thing you're probably hearing is I think there might be some construction going on, and there's some, you know, that awful thing that people have on their backhoe that makes a noise if it backs up that goes beep, beep, construction noise. Sorry about that. <laughs> so I was thinking in the musical, there's a song, there, and this does refer to um, the affair that Hamilton had with Mariah Reynolds. But the song is called Burn, and it occurred to me, after what you said, that maybe not only an affair can be erased, but you could actually shape history as a person who lived on by simply burning things that don't fit the narrative you wish to present and saving the good things. (laughs) You're right. And, you know, there's no evidence that I have yet been able to find that... Eliza Hamilton burnt the letters that she wrote to Hamilton. Um, But there is a big question of, well, where are they? Because they sure as hell haven't turned up. And she was very assiduous in collecting his official correspondence. Very interestingly, she did not throw out or burn or otherwise destroy the letters from Angelica to him. And I find that really, really puzzling and interesting because if she did destroy her letters, as opposed to just mislaying them somewhere, why did she keep Angelica's? That's a really interesting question. Hmm. A question for a shrink as much as anything. <laughs> you know, and so I don't know. Um, what is quite possible is that she didn't think her letters to him were worth preserving because they weren't of great consequence, which would kind of indicate that she was very, very self-effacing. And that actually doesn't entirely fit the portrait of her that emerges from her actions. I mean, she's really, you would think that would be a very, you know, a a self-effacing person who wouldn't stand up for herself or for anything else. And she was the reverse of that. Um, You know, the famous story that's in Chernow's biography about how she abraded former President Monroe when he was very old, came to visit her when she was very old, and said that he wanted him, came to visit her in Washington, where she was then living. And she didn't even invite him to sit down. and he said, oh, you know, okay, uh, so lovely to see you. Uh, and now we're very old and maybe we should let bygones be bygones and, you know, be friends because so much time has elapsed. And I, and she was just furious with him. And she just said to him, basically, if you have come to tell me that you are very, very sorry for having been so beastly to my husband in the matter of the Reynolds affair and everything else, if you've come to apologize to me for what you did to him, well, then fine, that we can let bygones be bygones. Otherwise, I have nothing to say to you. And he just left because there was nothing for him to say. And that is not a self-effacing woman. I mean, she's being fierce on behalf of someone else, not just herself. But when she, she went, she, she personally lobbied every member of Congress to restore Hamilton's pension, which he had given up. And after he died, she was destitute and needed the money. So she went down to Washington from New York City, where she lived, and she went around to every single member of Congress and buttonholed them 
until they gave her his pension. Not a self-effacing woman. Martha Washington had been her friend and had called her the true model of womanhood. Oh, yes. So she probably had a good reputation for, I don't even know what to call it, staunchly constant, I guess. Oh, um, yeah. Maybe she had a good reputation and, and um, just kind of carried with her like a force of will. Well, she really a really good friend. Um, and... You know, she, she if she believed in you, she was she was your loyalist for life. And the thing that's extraordinary, just extraordinary to me is that when the Reynolds scandal broke finally, and when Hamilton confessed to her that he was going to go public and confess to this adultery and you know all of this stuff, instead of having a nervous breakdown or instead of leaving him. She basically backed up, went home to Albany, stayed with her folks for a little while until she got a grip, and actually had yet another one of the many children she had, then came back to New York and stuck by him totally. And she was just fierce about everybody who was against him. She just, she could not have been more... um, more loyal, more of a defender of his reputation. And you just think that's extraordinary. I mean, that's more than the good wife. Well, yeah. And, well, and after he died, she's the one. She and her son, John, really kind of um, preserved his legacy, I think. It's every, always yes. good to have somebody come after you. We just did an t- episode yeah. on Mary Lincoln, and Mary Lincoln had no one to positively shape history toward her and until recently you know she's been very vilified and so it's good that alexander hamilton had a defender on the premises right when it needed to happen and and she really did make she desperately wanted to make sure not just that his correspondence was preserved and she she actually went around to all of the people like washington everyone who had alexander hamilton had written letters to asked them for those letters got them back, had them copied, and then gave them originals back to the people that owned them. But she went around and got, you know what, how much work that must have been? She, I mean, I can hardly imagine it myself now. And I have, you know, I don't have to physically go and get them yeah. from all these places. And she did that. That's an amazing thing. In order to preserve his correspondence and to have his biography written in such a way as to emphasize what she wanted emphasized about. I thought that was really pretty extraordinary. I'm pretty floored about that. That's, what a mission, you know? We are so excited to welcome our newest sponsor, The Great Courses Plus. Like so many of you, our learning certainly didn't stop when we finished school, and The Great Courses Plus feeds that need. It's a video learning service with over 7,000 video lectures on any topic that you can think of, and they're all taught by top professors. We really want you to try The Great Courses Plus, and so they're giving our listeners a special chance to watch hundreds of their courses for free including one of the courses that really aligns with the philosophy of this podcast, The Skeptic's Guide to American History. They go through the myths and the misconceptions about America's past, and then they give you a little bit of a twist, a new perspective. I like to lecture about religious toleration in the colonies, which 
does not look a lot like what we all learned in school. And the one that I thought was really interesting that ties into really perfectly into this particular um, episode was one about Hamilton and Jefferson. Uh, the professor contrasted them not only personally, but their politics and their opinions about how government should be ruled and their differing opinions on the meaning of the Constitution. Sign up today, and as one of our podcast listeners, you'll immediately get one month free to start watching as many lectures as you want. Make sure to check out the course that we watched, The Skeptic's Guide to American History. So to start your free trial today, you can sign up now at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash chicks. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash chicks. We know you're going to love it. So she lived for 50 or so years after her husband died, Eliza. And she, what is fascinating to me, and again, this is why I'm really interested in this, the two sisters aspect here. When Hamilton died, you would have expected that she, because she had been someone who had lived so thoroughly through him in her lifetime and in his lifetime, you would have expected that she, maybe that she would just fold up, you know, and that her entire life, if she did anything else, it would be only to try to preserve his legacy and, um, you know, keep body and soul together. But in fact, what she did was to found the first ever orphanage in New York City. She co-founded it with a friend. And she also... Uh, donated land for a free school in Upper Manhattan, which was the first free school in that part of the world. She really devoted herself full-time to, to public works. She ran that orphanage for like 30 years, which is amazing, until her daughter, who had married and moved to Washington, was widowed, and she went to live with her daughter. And, you know, it's a lot of people would think, oh, she went to live with her daughter because she was getting old and infirm. And there is, pardon me, the things, actually, I think she went to live with her daughter because her daughter didn't have anybody. <laughs> she went to be a good mom and help her daughter out because she she was a great social fixture in Washington and went around to dinner parties all the time. People thought she was, you know, a really prized guest, you know, to have, and her wit and her intelligence were commented on by people. You just think, this woman was a, a crackerjack. She was like a, an amazing woman. And um, her sister, Angelica, who was such a mover and shaker and kind of, you know, at the center of so many political, social intrigues and was always trying to further Hamilton's reputation and introduce him to this person and, and write letters to get him a job doing this or that after he was in disgrace. When he died, she just hung it up. She spent the rest of her time just being a society lady. And, you know, she'd go out to lunches and teas and whatnot. That was really it. She didn't do anything else. She just stopped. And I, I'm fascinated by that. It was like his departure from the scene just took the wind out of her sails. And maybe, you know, I find that difference really interesting. We did too. That um, Angelica just was fast out of the gate. She was fast and hard. And then she just kind of fizzled. Whereas yeah. Eliza was more the 
you know, the tortoise, you know. She, she played the long game. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. When she needed those skills, she had them because she's been developing them. I'm just going to throw this out there to see what you think of it. The very last person you see in the musical Hamilton, the very last, is Eliza. Is Hamilton Mr. Hamilton? Or is Hamilton Mrs. Hamilton? You know what I mean? She's such a hero to him, really. In, in a lot of ways and 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 quite honestly i don't know if he hadn't married her what would have happened to him mm -hmm. i mean would he have had the political and economic capital to to float the career that he had after the war i mean he was a pretty amazingly spunky guy and a self-inventor and i think he probably would have manage something for himself because that was just who he was but there is absolutely no doubt in my mind that what what his career was was so much enabled by the efforts of the family he married into and actually really the two women that um, he was most involved with the two sisters the two elder sisters because they were both in their different ways uh, so supportive of what he did. Yeah, it was a great, it was great teamwork. And I have to take this opportunity to gush about the last song, which is my personal favorite, um, "Who Lives, Who Dies, Who Tells Your Story." I mean, it's it's so so Eliza that she's like, "This is what I'm going to do," and all of a sudden, I'm in the spotlight and I can handle it, you know. And it for people like for like you, um, Amanda, and us. You know, we tell the stories, and that's what Eliza's going to do. So that's why this particular song touches me, because I can totally, you know, see it. How it well, you know, that, that really was, I mean, to me, it, it was that song that was the clarion call, because obviously, and, and as you, you responded to it in the same way, and I did as well, that it is about who does tell the story. And as a biographer, to hear this person on the stage say that, it was as if she were saying it to me. Amanda, get out of here and tell that story. <laughs> yeah, she left all the clues for you. So your travels are gonna take you to Washington, I assume. And oh, absolutely. And state New York. That beautiful city in the Hudson River, which I know well. Um, and, and also to London, because um, I, I have to try to trace a lot of the, uh, the John Church connections and the life that the church has had in England, which is very, very interesting. I have found where they lived. They had this very grand house on the Thames, and I have found it. So I am going to go and see it. Uh, it is still standing, and I'm very excited because there is some interesting historical um associations with it that I'm, I'm thoroughly fascinated by. And uh, I, I just, you know, she, she's a, I don't know if you know the playwright Richard Bridsley Sheridan, but Sheridan was another friend of theirs. And so I'm just trying to, I want to find amongst all of these very gossipy Whig politicians in London in the 80s and 90s, I want to find what kind of gossip traces I find about Angelica and John Church, because I bet there's plenty. So I'm looking 
for that. And um, I want to go to, I'm going to go to France and go and visit the Marquis de Lafayette's house where his papers are um, because the Hamiltons and Angelica Church were friends of his. And he wrote um, Eliza, uh, most charming letters when he was, he came back to America in the 1820s and made a big grand tour. And he wrote her some adorable letters at that time, which really testified in the friendship that they had. And I just want to see what, what might be in his papers that comes from this side of the Atlantic. So I'll go there. And, um, and anywhere else I possibly need to go but I've, it, this looks like probably the I might be in I, maybe Philadelphia Boston there's a bunch of papers in Boston I need to investigate letter collections and maybe I'll find something great there I don't know what else should we know or you know is there any other surprises that you found or a last word you want to leave us with I think really well the last word is I think we probably we just we passed out which <laughs> the question about the, the who lives who dies who tells your story that that easily 200 200 and something years after the events that I'm writing about uh, that there can be a Pulitzer Prize winning Tony winning uh, hip hop musical written about that features these two women testifies to their eternal freshness as a subject. And also, um, because of the song, the last song in it really indicates there are still mysteries about what happened and what is the story that can be told and who will tell it. And I think it's just really exciting to be at the point of investigating, piecing together and telling this story. I mean, women's history in this country has never been as celebrated as men's history. I mean, like, and there's a whole thing called the Founding Fathers Project. The Founding Fathers. If you want to look up all the papers of any of the Founding Fathers, you can just go online. <clears throat> They've all been digitized, and you can see them. But this is not true of the women. Mm -hmm. Really, who lives, who dies, who tells your story moment. Um, who is going to tell the story of those women? Who's going to make sure that their story gets told also? I think that's just so important. And um, I, this is a chance to do that. And I'm really excited about it. Where can people find you online in order to follow your progress on the book or honestly um, even follow your progress of research? If you have a an Instagram that you're going to take pictures of your research journey, we would love to share well, yeah, I have never, I haven't done that, but I've been thinking about doing it because actually... I think it'd be really fun to just post pictures. And I, I have an Instagram account and I need, I will, I need to let you know what it even is because I haven't used it. I opened it and didn't use it, but, um, but I do have a Twitter and I have a Facebook and cause I'm, that's, that's how old fashioned I am. And I have a website, which is amandavale.com. And I put stuff up on that from time to time and I I for a long time when I wasn't working on something I would I put up blog entries then I stopped doing it because I got really embroiled in a bunch of projects that just stopped me from being able to do this but now that I'm getting started on all this research again I I want to be able to put progress reports up there as well so I'm going to 
And um, and I will I will take to heart your Instagram suggestion, which as I say, I've been thinking about myself. You know, even if you did a, a separate account just for this project, um, I know selfishly, I would love to follow along and see those places that you're going. Um, we actually have a hashtag on Instagram. It's hashtag History Chicks Field Trip, where people post pictures of places that relate to stories that we've told. Okay, well, I can. I will certainly hashtag you. Oh. And we'll do this because there is there's something I need to go and investigate. This may turn out to be a huge bust, or it may turn out to be a giant bombshell. But there is a gravestone in a cemetery in Westchester County, just north of New York, that may belong to someone whose name I won't mention, but who, if this gravestone is to be believed, this person uh, married rather surprisingly. And if I can find out that this actually is a real live gravestone, really it does exist, and the person in that grave actually is the person that it says it is, that will be a giant revelation and really, really fascinating. So I'm going to, I'm going to go up here and look at that. And if it is what I think it is or what I hope it is, I will take a picture of it and put it on my Instagram and you know about it. Oh, I, I'm so intrigued. I can hardly stand it. <laughs> sort of ridiculous stuff that you do when you're a biographer, you look at anything. I mean, you do this dumb thing, like, I get on the train, I go up to, you know, this town in Westchester, and I look at it, and if it is what, you know, if it's one thing, I've struck gold. If it's not, well, I took a chance. I spent an afternoon doing nothing, you know. That's the way it is. <laughs> I think that's kind of the fun part of what you do, you know, even if it's a flop. It's just yeah. exciting. Is it, is it, is it, oh no, it's just another story arc, you know, within the story of you writing the story. It's like being a detective. It really is. And, you know, you are investigating a story. You know, you want, you want to piece together a narrative and you need to find the pieces. And, you know, you, you go anywhere to find them. And no piece is too small. You know, some tiny little something. Just if it has life in it, then it's, it's exciting. So I, I don't ever think it's wasted. In keeping with our tradition here, until Amanda Vale's book is available, and we will certainly let you know the second we know, um, in keeping with our tradition of having media, you know, amandavale.com, Twitter, at amandavale, that's with V-A-I-L-L. Um, we also would like to recommend a book we both bought, Hamilton, The Revolution, by Lin-Manuel Miranda himself and Jeremy McCarter. And honestly, you get a hold of this book, and it looks like an $80 book, but it's under $30, yeah. and you can't believe it. Uh, has the entire script, background, lots of photos. Highly recommend. I mean, the fact that we bought it, <laughs> each of us have a copy instead of just borrowing it from the library is a testament to the quality of this book. And um, so the last thing I'm going to leave everybody with is Eliza wore in a little locket around her neck a poem that Alexander Hamilton wrote to her and she kept it in that locket for her whole life, even after he died. I just wanted to read the poem really quick. Now there is a word nobody can read, so I'm just going to uh, say the word blank. There's a word that's illegible, I'm sorry to say, but here it is. Before no mortal ever knew a love like mine so tender, true, completely wretched, you away, and but half blessed even while you stay. 
if present love blank face deny you to my fond embrace no joy unmixed my bosom warms but when my angels in my arms and then he signed it and that little poem she kept for her whole Thank you so much, Amanda Vale, for talking to us. This was so much fun. And actually, I would love to just touch base with you frequently because you feel like the best readers ever. <laughs> I can't imagine what fun it would be to sort of share goodies with you because that's, that's how it feels. Like when you find good stuff, you want to share it.